Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to get funny, because we're talking about Albert Brooks. Why don't they have Halloween in India? Because they took away the Gandhi. <coughs> Just one of many memorable moments from Albert Brooks's most recent directorial effort. Probably you, last directorial pro- probably effort. Probably at this yeah. point. Uh, looking for comedy in the Muslim world. Now, Albert Brooks is known to most people as the guy that voices uh, Hank Scorpio in The Simpsons. And uh, Jacques. Who yep, that's right. Jacques. I think a couple other characters Everyone's well. forgotten Jacques. Come on, let's be honest. Well, Jacques was in the opening credits for years. <laughs> you remember? That's right. Uh, he also redid the Hank Scorpio and the forgettable villain in The Simpsons movie. That's right. And Albert Brooks... Strange career, Mm -hmm. you know? He pops up in strange places. He's very revered by comedians and filmmakers. A real comics comic. I mean, in the 70s, he was a regular on the Johnny Carson show, the Merv Griffin show, stuff like that. I was watching some bits from his Johnny Carson years, and then he went on to do them in comedy, uh, looking for comedy in the Muslim world. (laughs) Yes, but he also pops up in movies. You know, he's the uh, hapless campaign worker in Taxi Driver. The villain in Drive. Yep, that's right, Drive. Uh, He was Oscar nominated, of course, for broadcast news. I mean, he appears in some uh, lesser movies as well, like The Rookie and The In-Laws. Which he has a co-writing credit just based on the writing he did, like, on the set. (laughs) Interesting. And of course, who could forget the main voice in Finding Nemo and Mm -hmm. Finding Dory. It's not like his acting career follows any particular path. It feels like a almost a Bill Murray, I'm not really trying to go and get anything, mm-hmm. which I think is mostly what his career is. Yeah, he famously turned down the lead role in Pretty Woman, the <laughs> Richard Gere part. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not that it, not, it probably wouldn't have been nope. the hit that it was with him. but <coughs> Bad movie, but anyway. <laughs> and I think you're absolutely right that his career gives across the impression of, you know, not working for what am i looking the things that other comedians are looking for he's not like driven like he doesn't need the awards or the acclaim and he doesn't want to i don't want to say he doesn't want to challenge himself but you don't see that kind of like ah yes albert brooks he's going out of his comfort zone to make this you feel like looking at his imdb you're like ah yes i could see how he stumbled into this role well he follows his own muse Mm -hmm. certainly and as a director a writer director he's made seven films Probably, I would say... One of them uh, called The Muse. <laughs> yes. Uh, four of which are, are quite revered. And, you know, he's often compared to Woody Allen. But unlike Woody Allen, he's never really become... Um, you know, he's a comedian's comedian. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Albert Brooks hasn't had that Woody Allen, I guess, popularity? I mean, I know why, but... Uh, I think there are a lot of reasons. I mean, Woody Allen, for most of his career, was kind of a savvy self-brander in that he was he made a movie every year mm-hmm. so he was sort of inescapable he starred in all of them and he was sort of lovable in his yeah movies. I was gonna say that's like Woody Allen is like the likable neurotic like what was that Orson Welles quote that like he hates Woody Allen because people th- that are that neurotic and self-effacing are just really arrogant yeah yeah <laughs> whereas you know if, if Woody Allen is Charlie Chaplin Albert Brooks is Buster Keaton yeah kinda his whole personality in his best films is defined by him being arrogantly wrong (laughs) which is like he is so sure he's right in what he's doing Mm -hmm. and that's where all the comedy comes from Mm -hmm. (laughs) and also his movies are 
bone dry. <laughs> yes. You know? You're like, is this a joke? I'm not sure. You've got to come towards the movies. The movies aren't going to spoon feed anything to you. I mean, one of his big famous skits was him just being a bad ventriloquist. Like, that's the joke. Yeah, I mean, as a stand-up and as, as a talk show guest, he was very much into deconstructing mm-hmm. uh, comedy. And that stand-up bit people haven't seen it he, he's got a ventriloquist dummy but he just starts he just doesn't care about his lips moving you know <laughs> yeah. at one point he just drops the dummy he's like watch it talk while i smoke and the dummy's just like laying on the ground and he's puffing away <laughs> just talking on the side of his mouth or, or then he like starts <laughs> he, he starts pouring water into the dummy's <laughs> mouth as he sings yeah that's right. Oh, man. So it's good. still funny today. Even yeah. though, like, if you explain it to somebody, like, the bits, it's just deconstructing comedy. Like, look how lame this actually is if it's done poorly. <laughs> <laughs> and his movies, I think, uh, if a word comes to mind, the word is merciless. <laughs> yes. In uh, the, the characters are generally unlikable. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are... Painfully so. Yes. And the movies, um, they don't exactly pass judgment on the characters, but they don't let them off the hook. The movies unfold often in these static medium shots, uh, in these kind of austere settings, Mm -hmm. like uh, in Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World, for instance, it's just these shitty offices, (laughs) and and you you see people's entire bodies basically in the frame as they're having these very dry, deadpan conversations with each other, looking ridiculous. He's kind of like the Brisson of, of comedy we should, filmmakers. We, we should start with real life, because mm-hmm. this is the one that, like, when people see it, they're like, wow, who is this guy? He was doing this before anybody else was. Real life being his parody, not of reality television, but of the PBS uh, documentary, An American Family. Which is kind of the first reality show, mm-hmm. even though at the time it was framed as sort of a very serious documentary. Cinema verite, like it's just like a year in the life. Yeah, people had no conception of the vulgarized reality TV that we know now. So Albert Brooks plays Albert Brooks, a comedian who's producing a show. And he's a the ultimate showbiz phony. He's come to this town in Arizona. Oh, the opening is so good where he just introduces what they're going to do and then sings a song about himself. Yeah, he's got the whole town gathered there, basically. And he's got these two researchers from a very serious research institute because as he explains to the camera nobody would take the movie seriously if we didn't have them and if we have them you know we could get an oscar maybe even a nobel prize and he just says this with no inflection just completely deadpan as if it's the most natural thing in the world and so we follow this family with um father figure charles groden yeah he albert rooks picks a family you know the, <laughs> the ultimate... most boring american family that he can find and to evoke the ultimate in naturalism he gets these four cameras that look like <laughs> big tv set space helmets yeah the, like the um, camera... robot monster <laughs> yeah and the, you know cameramen wear them on their heads unobtrusively to film the action. every time they show up in the background it's so funny <laughs> when they're just walking around like this giant eyesore happening within these scenes he picks this family and charles groden you know the ultimate everyman yeah uh, is is the patriarch and the family because they're under this enormous pressure, they quickly start to unravel. <laughs> Instantly, the and first night. Albert Brooks, who's living across the street in this house <laughs> that he's built, and of course he's supposed to be an unobtrusive filmmaker. She just wants nothing but real life. But the thing is, 
if it happens in front of the camera, it is real life. Mm-hmm. So he he gives himself permission to intrude in any way that he wants. Yeah. Oh, but no, no, no. Just do whatever feels natural. But um, uh, if you could go in this car, that would be better. Yeah. It's like, oh, there's there's no there's no drama here. You yeah. know? Do, do you think my protagonist is unlikable? <laughs> yeah, that's and right. He's got a studio executive who keeps. <laughs> Can we get his... some stars? What yeah. if Neil Diamond lived next door? <laughs> yeah. You know who the father should be? Paul Newman. <laughs> yeah. And we should point out that Albert Brooks is incredibly unlikable in this role. He is self-destructive, self-deprecating in the most annoying way possible. I mean, yeah, thinking about Albert Brooks and like like what his persona is, there's something kind of bland about him. Mm-hmm. He's he's not particularly interesting looking as yep. a person. He looks like just a schlub. He looks very much like an everyman, and yet he carries himself with this intense swagger yeah like, well it's i'm like, the most interesting man in the world <laughs> it's that commitment to the bit yeah. and that driving force which leads to all the uncomfortable stuff that you see in his movies because i think other than real life the most famous one oh man we have to point out i don't want to gloss over it but the funniest one of the funniest bits about real life is the trailer oh yeah <laughs> which it's albert brooks being like this trailer's in 3d and the trailer has no footage from the movie in it. and of course it says at the bottom of the trailer 3D glasses not provided at this theater. And Albert Brooks, like, picks up, like, a ping pong racket. He's like, whoa! <laughs> isn't this intense? <laughs> yeah. And as a as a comedian, he has this stubborn refusal to ever, like, fully, like, let things explode. Mm. I mean, except, I guess, at the end of real life. Yes. It, like, there's finally a catharsis. But for most of the movie, like... You keep waiting for the moment when somebody is going to acknowledge how ridiculous this all mm. is. Um, but it's remains stubbornly at the same dry, deadpan uh, level. Yeah, until the end, which is almost like the one false note. Like, it does feel like studio executives like, something needs to happen at the end here. Yeah, It's funny that the movie gets a little bit darker as it Mm -hmm. goes along, including that amazing scene, the the horse operation. (laughs) Yeah. Where, where Groden accidentally, the horse dies on his watch. He's a vet. Yeah. And he goes in and has this conversation with Hey, Albert can you Brooks. make sure the footage is not there? No, just forget about the footage. Uh, can, can I sign some things on the footage? No, no, I couldn't do that because then I would maybe I wouldn't include the footage. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> don't worry about the footage. Yeah, just live your life like you would do every day. Mm-hmm. So, Modern Romance, I, I think, is like the ultimate mm-hmm. Albert Brooks film. Yeah, and... When people talk about the comparisons with Woody Allen, mm-hmm. this is probably the movie they're thinking of. It's the ultimate breakup movie. Even though that, like, Woody Allen, in his, like, romantic classic, Annie Hall, Manhattan, there's still that romanticism there. Oh, yeah. Like, there is no romanticism in modern romance. <laughs> Only creepy, stalkery behavior that anybody who's ever been in any relationship has felt some form of. <laughs> yeah, and you keep expecting there to be, like, some glimmer of, of romance. Yeah. some Some bit of sentimentality but it just keeps getting darker as it goes along. So the film starts with Albert Brooks breaking up with his long-term uh, girlfriend, Catherine Harold, at a very uncomfortable dinner conversation because he's like, eh, you know, I'm not feeling too good. This, this, this just isn't working with me and you. And she like says that this has happened many times before. Why are they still having this conversation? But he goes through with it and he's like, we're broken up. Regrets it instantly. So the first half of the movie is just him trying to define his new life. And this part... <laughs> I think rings extremely true, <laughs> yeah. right? Like if you're in a relationship for a long time, 
you know, inevitably it's you become the first day of my uh, life. Yeah, you become a little bit codependent on the person, and there's that feeling of being like, okay, well, I get to, I get to live a new life. I get to be my my own man again. But that's like, <laughs> I, what, what the, am I, I going to do? The punchline in every scene of this opening is Albert Brooks will start to do something, and then suddenly go back to his old behavior and like try to call his girlfriend, being like, oh, she's not there. That's a sign. You know, I should take the sign. I should move on. Then he dials her number. <laughs> hurriedly again there's that great interlude where he decides to get in shape yeah and he goes to the the fitness store where the guy who works there is played by super dave osborne yes folks did you know that super dave osborne is actually albert rooks's brother in real life uh super dave is so funny in the scene <laughs> and you can see how that translated to curb your enthusiasm where he essentially plays the same character that he plays yeah. in this scene yeah. and in fact in arrested development by <laughs> that's the way. right he is he, in, he arrested is in arrested development, development. Yeah. well the scene is bob so einstein is his real name by the way listen did you think it said super dave osborne on his uh i, I certainly hope so so yeah, they they planted they planted the tombstone and then a train came by and ran over. It just ejected his body out of it. Whoa! But like that scene where he's trying to buy the sneakers, I feel like everyone's been in that where like the salesperson's like, "Oh no, you don't want that. That's shit." Do I really need these two? Yeah. What if one of them's in the wash? I guess I won't run that day. I'm sorry, I misjudged you. Here, yeah. you can have the cheap one. Yeah. No, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. No, I want the expensive stuff. I want the expensive stuff. And the second half of the this movie is even more depressing where they get back into their relationship and go through the exact same cycle and just absolutely unsparing in its depiction of the albert brooks character's sexual angst <laughs> yeah hey, you shouldn't wear that when you go out you sure you're gonna wear that to the office that's a little revealing yeah, yeah. and like i think ultimately i don't know the conclusion i get from it is that the main reason he doesn't want to break up is he doesn't like the thought of her being with another man i guess so yeah. <laughs> please marry me just marry me yeah oh god and then the movie ends on this I mean, you obviously don't want to spoil the ending, but it ends on this note that feels sort of apocalyptic, actually. <laughs> yes, it does. But then there's a title card that says that everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Albert Brooks uses title cards a lot in his movies to just kind of, I feel like, pull back on the tension. Because real life has a like title card at the end to add a, a few more jokes and let people know, oh, life went on after this, this apocalypse. We mentioned earlier that the characters in his movies are so unlikable. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that they're very... On the one hand, they're very self-aggrandizing and they have, you know, big plans for themselves and they think, uh, oh, yeah, I'm 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 great and I'm going to do this great thing. But they have no politics, you know, they <laughs> have follow through. Yeah, they have no follow through. They have no there's nothing behind like the great thing they're going to do except this self-aggrandizement. It's like, well, I'm the sort of person who should do mm. a great thing and therefore I'm going to do it. I'm white, successful, middle class. Why don't I have all these things that I feel like I should have? Yeah, they and there's no reason for it beyond just their self-image. And uh, I don't know if you watched uh, this week his third movie, Lost in America. I did. Uh, which is also, you know, a, a, a very funny film. Where <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Where Albert Brooks gets fired after many years. Uh, no, he doesn't get fired. He, he doesn't quit. get the promotion. Yeah, so he quits in a huff. And of course, he's, you know, at this big New York company rising the corporate ladder. And he decides, you know what, if I'm not going to get this promotion, I'm going to drop out of society like Easy Rider. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're going to get a camper van. We're going to hit the road. We're just we're just going to live, man. Walk, <laughs> walk the earth. Yep. And it blows up in his face almost instantly. Well, 
where do he and his wife Julie Haggerty go first? Las they, Vegas. Yeah, I mean, they, they really want to escape the the rat race, the, this capitalist system that we have. They go to Las Vegas, <laughs> and uh, Julie Haggerty gambles all his money away, and, or their money away, right? And having no real ideals beyond just the the idea of living a sort of easy riderish lifestyle, uh, they 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 quickly <laughs> they they're quickly humbled. I love how when they get stopped by the cop, the cop's like, you know how Easy Rider ends, right? People often talk about this movie as being this attempt to bridge the gap between, like, it's the, it's kind of one of the ultimate boomer movies mm-hmm. where it's these people in the 60s had these ideals and then they all sold out in the 80s. And, and why was that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's because a lot of them were very shallow. <laughs> That's right. Not like us, us deep yeah. individuals who are going to change the world. Every Albert Brooks movie has at least, like, one or two just total classic scenes and in this one there's the part where he's trying to get out of his big debt with the casino or try to get the money back from the casino so <laughs> what, are you, what why don't you make a sign that says uh you know we gave these people's money back <laughs> yeah like you could be the generous casino yeah. people will want to come here no no we can't do that and this scene goes on and on and on with the with the manager of the casino played by gary marshall oh i didn't know that was gary marshall you're giving a brilliant performance so I think. good <laughs> i mean james l brooks shows up in albert brooks films as well that, all the time that's right. He's, uh, of course, in Modern Romance as the director of the science fiction film. <laughs> the director of the um, George Kennedy science fiction film that Albert Brooks is editing. Happy to say that uh, George Kennedy appears as himself. <laughs> that's right. And they're all really excited to see him and for him to tell the same anecdote over and over again. I guess that Albert Brooks had his bid for the mainstream or his bid for a sort of Woody Allenish popular success with Defending Your Life. Yeah. I, I, you know, I like it. But it is missing that, like, meanness of Albert Brooks. Yeah. Like, the ending, I'm like, huh, what? No, come on. Yeah. I mean, it has those fun Brooks asides. Like, the Simpsons writers uh, always say that, like, they could not stop Brooks from saying funny stuff and just coming up with uh, funny bits. <laughs> yeah, well, I know that in that episode from the first season of The Simpsons, mm-hmm. the one where he plays Jacques. Yep, the, everyone's favorite. <laughs> uh, there are some scenes in it where Jacques is, like, riffing and you hear Julie Kavner laughing, like... <laughs> Like, which was actually what happened in the recording booth. And Defending Your Life, it has an Albert Brooks character, this vain, um, useless person who dies and ends up going up to... Not uh, heaven. Not heaven. Mm. Uh, this purgatorial place where, um, with the help of Rip Torn, who's very funny in the movie... Playing his sort of defense attorney as they sort of make the case for why <laughs> should he be able to go to heaven. Yeah. there's a, But, you know, this... <sighs> I mean, it makes me wish that Albert Brooks had, like, written more movies in this type, because you can tell he is really good at it. Uh, we call you the little brains. You only use 5% of your brain power. It, it's a fun movie because there, there's something about Albert Brooks's style. He has a, like, very lightly surreal style mm-hmm. in the way that everybody is so deadpan. And in this one, he applies it to... You know, kind of surrealism. A, a but, surreal setting. But yeah. it's not even that surreal because it's just like surreal stuff in the most boring way possible. Yeah. Like when Albert Brooks finds out that not, he's not even in the good hotel. <laughs> yeah. This is why I think he's kind of like Brisson. Yeah. Oh, is it what, like the evolution and the surrealism of his filmmaking? Well, just the fact that everybody gives these very stripped down performances mm. and they're in these very austere settings. I uh, feel like Albert yeah, Brooks... I, you know what? It's a very superficial comparison, folks. <laughs> there is a... I'm not Jonathan Rosenbaum. I never claimed to be. Listen, if I want to compare someone to Brisson... Wait, who did it? Was it Matt Farley? I feel like it was Matt yeah, Farley. Yeah, Matt Farley. Yeah, he's, he's the new Brisson. After Defending Your Life, you feel Albert Brooks trying to 
make those kinds of movies. Like Mother as well is a, like feel goody, even though that it does have more of a barbed edge than it, than you would expect from something like this. Yeah, I revisited Mother this week, which again is the stuff he made in the '90s is interesting because you have this guy Albert Brooks, a comedian's comedian, somebody who's always trying to deconstruct comedy turn movies on their head in some way giving you very unsparing mean comedies and then he tries to make these studio comedies in the 90s but on his own terms Mm -hmm. so they're still very droll and they still don't don't spoon feed the laughs to you they're sort of funny without really trying too hard to be funny Mm -hmm. i mean there's bits like in mother where albert brooks is just riffing about like Mm -hmm. food in the refrigerator (laughs) I, I was surprised kind of how slow Mother is. Yeah, you know, it is. Well, he's it, just hanging out. There's yeah. no plot at all. Like. Yeah, so in Mother, he plays a twice-divorced writer, science fiction writer. <laughs> yep. It's always strange to me when Albert Brooks plays a character like, like a science... I, I look at Why Albert, didn't he just play Albert Brooks? Yeah, just play Albert Brooks in every movie. <laughs> yeah. Like how Jackie Chan plays Jackie Chan. <laughs> That's right. He realizes that he has some problem relating with women, and so... And he traces it back to his relationship with his mother. So he decides to go back and live with his mother, who is quite a happy, empty nester at this point. Mm-hmm. She and, has her own life. She's doing her own thing. And you're watching this expecting that it's going to become, you know, a standard comedy about, uh oh, what happens when the kid moves back in with his parents at 40? No, but you know what? It's probably what would happen to any of us if we move back in with our families. It almost has an Eric Romer-esque tone. <laughs> yeah, just two you know what it does. Hanging out, talking, <laughs> and then the working bi- through their differences. <laughs> the big reveal is very funny. <laughs> yeah. Where he's like, oh, that's why I feel so bad because you've always hated me. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's sweet in a way because you sort of expect it, the Debbie Reynolds character, his mm-hmm. mother, spends a lot of her first scenes being very passive-aggressive and not very emotionally supportive And you think that's what it's going to be the entire movie. Like, this kind of, like, nagging mother, which is the way that he portrays her, especially in that first part of the film. But she becomes quite humanized Mm -hmm. as it goes along, and the relationship between the two of them feels very real and lived in. I was surprised, I remember, because this film is pretty much dismissed from Albert Brooks post-Defending Your Life, like most of the films that he made, Mm -hmm. like, um, Looking for Comedy. Or The Muse. The Muse, yes, which which I did not watch. revisit that this week that's his most mainstream one i think mm. but looking for comedy in the muslim world is not his mainstream one even though it did open ma- uh wide to the confusion of many people i imagine theaters uh, watching the movie who i mean let's face it a mainstream audience in 2006 probably forgot who albert brooks was at <laughs> yes. this point so they were probably watching these routines you know uh, jaws open you know confused just like the people in the movie were well the funny thing about this film is that you're not even sure what you're supposed to laugh at. Like, what does Albert Brooks think is fun? Because him doing bits from the 70s is almost sad if you know what's going on. Yeah, okay, so the plot of this movie, and this feels like a real throwback to real life, Mm -hmm. because he once again plays Albert Brooks. Middle-aged, very frustrated actor. Who really wants the role in Harvey. <laughs> he wants to star in a Harvey remake directed by Penny Marshall. And Penny Marshall's like, ah, no, I did not he, picture him. He's too Jewy. Why <laughs> yeah. do we have him here? So, And he comes in and he talks for like 30 seconds, like, thank you very much for coming in. He's so like, oh, okay. We get the sense that he's basically forgotten in Hollywood. The in-laws destroyed his career. Mm-hmm. But then he gets called into the office of uh, Fred Dalton Thompson, senator in Washington, played, in fact, by Fred Thompson. <laughs> I did not know that. The late, great Fred Thompson. And he's got a committee together and he says, look... 
the president wants to better understand the Muslim world, and we think the best way to do that is by understanding what makes them laugh. Are you going to pay me? Uh, no. No, but you could get, uh, what is it, the Medal of Freedom? <laughs> He's like, ooh, the that Medal would, of Freedom. That would do a lot for your acting class. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to have to do a 500-page report. 500 pages? Doesn't that seem like a lot? Wow, we couldn't justify the expense for less than 500 pages. <laughs> That's such a funny joke. So he goes over to India and Pakistan, and as he points out, India, isn't that mostly Hindu? Yeah. And he says, well, there are 100 million Muslims there, and hey, if we find out what makes the Indians laugh, God. The, the trip will be a success. Uh, yeah, lots of good jokes. So he goes over with two government bureaucrats who are totally unhelpful and uh, an Indian uh, translator mm-hmm. helper who is more helpful and they have no particular plan on how to how to find out what makes it the is Muslims the laugh. most shambling movie you have ever seen it's a big shaggy dog joke <laughs> yeah that's all it is yeah there's no real punchline it's just like nothing is discovered yeah at one point he just goes home after a um after almost starting Ishtar a war. like <laughs> yeah that's right and really this is albert brooks's ishtar yeah yeah nothing nothing is accomplished and you quickly realize he has no interest whatsoever in finding out what makes the Muslims laugh. He just wants to be funny. Yeah, he just, he wants to be funny. Yeah. He wants people to like him. So in the centerpiece scene of the movie, he has a comedy show <laughs> where, as you mentioned, he does his famous bits, the Albert Brooks bits from the 70s. And imagine meta comedy, American meta comedy about American showbiz history for an audience in the Middle East, yeah. or, well, in India. Do you think this film, as a white guy, giving your opinion, toes on the line of racism, though? I mean, I think, you know, inevitably there will be moments mm-hmm. uh, here and there when maybe it crosses yeah. crosses the line a bit. But I think for the most part, the movie is about uh, ugly Americans. Yeah, you know? 100%. And I think people... I, I've raised this movie to several people mm. and and they're always like oh yeah i never saw that one like they they sort I, of, I thought it was a documentary like people who i talk to about this movie they seem almost sort of like wary of it by the title it mm-hmm. sounds like oh that that's going to be kind of an islamophobic thing but yeah. it's, but it's really not no not really i mean if you go in hoping for like a borat style <laughs> i mean borat is racist yeah yeah it is a little bit <laughs> a little bit <laughs> Um, so I, I think it's too bad. I think if you're, and I'm not even sure who I would recommend looking for comedy in the Muslim world too, because I think you kind of have to be a big Albert Brooks fan to like it. <laughs> yeah. But if, if you, you are, watch all the Albert Brooks film in this, cause it is a perfect like final film. Oh because yeah. It's about how like doing bits from the beginning of his career and still wanting the same, like, just, I just want some laughs. Yeah. And comedy doesn't work outside of context. Yeah. And he didn't even think about that. Like someone points yeah. it out to him, like, have they ever seen a ventriloquist routine? And like Albert Brooks throughout the whole movie, he's more likable than he was in real life, but he's really not that much better. No, he's you know? not. <laughs> so as per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and big announcement. Is it a big announcement if we do it every month now? <laughs> well, I think it's a big announcement because, folks, you're going to have a new thing on your shelf. We were pleased... <laughs> if you buy it. We were pleased by the rapturous response to our Blu-ray release, the Important Cinema Club Bargain Bin Classics Blu-ray release of The Dragon Lives Again. It mm-hmm. sold out. It was a massive hit. I think it changed cinema. Yeah, completely. And, and so we wanted to do it again. And so we went back to the well. What? we love that's in the public domain oh a wise guy eh
Yep, it's the Three Stooges. Not so hot. In the title, In Public Domania. (laughs) The Three Stooges in Public Domania. We have created a lovingly crafted Blu-ray tribute to those masters of mayhem. Mo, Larry, Curly, Shamp, Curly Joe Dorita. Joe Besser. I don't think Besser's on it. No, Joe Besser's not on it. We talk about him a lot, though. (laughs) Yes. It has their four public domain shorts for the Columbia Pictures Company. Malice in the Palace, Disorder in the Court, Brideless Groom, Sing a Song of Six Pants. It has their unaired TV pilot, Jerks of All Trades. Yes, uh, probably the purest Stooges you will ever find. You will see the Stooges in front of a live studio audience agents of chaos uh we have the three stooges in i think we ended up calling it public uh domain extravaganza two hours of just miscellaneous clips throughout their career have you ever wanted to see shemp in a three stooges ripoff short well you can see it here that's right shemp as mo yes you will see it you will ted see- healy and the stooges you'll see ted healy the man who made the stooges famous slapping him around you will see Curly Joe Dorita in a bathing suit. <laughs> yep. The Three Stooges in color. And if that's not enough, we have a bonus feature for you. A whole bonus film, The Swing Parade of 1946. Directed by Phil Carlson, the guy who did Phoenix City Story and Kansas City Confidential and Walking Tall, co-written by Nicholas Ray. Is it funny? Nope. <laughs> you will see Curly very ailing. <laughs> yes. Months away from the stroke that would basically end his life. Uh, there there are a ton of extras. Yeah, we to... did a big long video featurette about um, why we love the Three Stooges. We have a full-length audio commentary. Yep. We have liner notes, mm-hmm. and it's 200 individually numbered copies. That's copies. right. It's 10 bucks Canadian if you go to... Plus shipping. Plus, yeah, shipping. It's almost the price of shipping, but even that 20 bucks for this? There's only 200 that exist in the world. And this time, I also commissioned some original artwork by Andrew Barr that graces the cover. Oh my god. You know, yep. if I were a fan and I didn't already own all this material, <laughs> because you know I do. Yeah, you do. Uh, I would I would. Do be... you own a copy of um, uh, the monogram movie they made? Swing Parade? Yeah, uh, yeah I do. Oh, you do? Okay. And uh, just like last time, play around on the menu because there's some really fun Easter eggs on there. Clear an evening is all I'll say. Good stuff. So again, that's goldninjavideo.com. Order it now before they're gone. And unlike the Dragon Lives Again, this one actually won't be shipping until... September, I, I believe I said 17th, and the reason for that is TIFF is starting. Yes. And I'm going to be essentially off the grid for 10 days, so there will be no episode of the Important Cinema Club next week. Aw, uh, too bad. Yep. We, we may do a Patreon one. There will be a Patreon I'll, I'll one. I'll talk to you about your TIFF experiences. Yep. Um, because yeah. uh, people are paying, so you got to give that Patreon stuff out. That's right. So if you're like, oh man, a week with some Important Cinema Club, and you're not a Patreon subscriber... Come on, man. Become a Patreon subscriber. Patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. So, uh, nothing to plug for next week. Nope, so, ne- uh, nothing. My- Until then, mind just the clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Just want to interrupt here for a moment to thank some new Patreon subscribers like Lee Blazelwood. Uh, Charles Demex for becoming a $10 patron from a $5 one, Jack Anderson, Stuart Shepard, and Anthony Vitimia. Thank you so much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We couldn't keep doing this without you. Well, the audio quality of this has changed because we're now coming live from a young and Dundas cinema. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm here, and this is where cinema dreams are made of. You <laughs> That's know, right. In the food court, just downstairs. 
We're in front of the Harveys, which is closed. <laughs> yep, that's because there was this a... guerrilla reporting, you know? <laughs> there was an emergency. I saw on Daniel Waters, yes, the writer of Heather's Facebook page, that he went to go see a new Indian film in L.A. He said he drove out of his way to see it, and I checked the name of the film, which was... Asaho, with two A's. And I went, whoa, I've never heard of this. He said that he saw God when he watched the film, and I looked, and because we live in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, it's playing at the Young Undendath Theater, literally 15 minutes away for us. We are lucky to have a large Indian diaspora in Mm -hmm. Toronto that can bring movies like this close to us. And uh, this movie... How would you describe it in comparison to other um, Indian films? Because this is not a Bollywood film. It's a Telugu film, Mm -hmm. which I actually am still uncertain the difference. Language? We saw it in Hindi, but it was dubbed. Okay. okay, Yeah. But it's like a different film industry than the Bollywood one, which is the Hindi film industry, as far as I can tell. This film is directed by a man named Sujith who is 28 years old. Yes, that haunted you, didn't it, when you learned that? It really bothers me, and it's a Full throttle, balls to the wall, crime action thriller. (laughs) It's got elements of the Fast and Furious movies, Mission Impossible. It's got a little Mad Max in there. (laughs) Uh, Like like any Indian action film, uh, it wears its influences on its sleeve. It's a rip-off, if you will. 170 minutes long. For people at home, that is three hours. Oh my god. (laughs) Holy moly. So, there comes a point halfway through the movie when there's a big, big twist. Yes. I mean, we don't want to spoil it. Ah, I'll spoil it. No, 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 because we were literally shocked when it happened. Okay, okay. Well, I'll tell you what happens up to that point. Yeah. Okay? So there's this big crime family, Mm -hmm. a a big evil crime organization. It's called the Roy Company, but the actual man, Roy, was killed by a man who was taken over. Who was the son of the man who originally owned this company. And they say the Roy Company like it's the most threatening thing a hundred times in this film. The Roy Company. (laughs) Yeah. Because the man's name was Roy. Yep. Anyway, the police have been trying to nail this bad guy forever. And they've got a a hot young cop. Yeah. A real cool guy. A guy who's always saying things like, it's showtime, or <laughs> let the game begin. Yep. Stuff like that. And he is played by an actor by the name of, uh, hang on, let me let me look up his name, Prabhas. And this is a guy that Vin Diesel-like is how I would describe him. Like, he's not as cut as you would expect, like, a, a hero, a little doughy, yeah. a, maybe a little bit old to be doing this. But he's very good at... You know, putting on his sunglasses while something explodes behind him. And electric guitars are going, damn! This is the kind of movie that if someone is threatening, right before they arrive into a room, the lights will start to flicker. <laughs> and this is packed with those um, Indian, uh, not eccentricities, but I guess tropes. Oh, sure. The fact that the... Um, main woman in the film her hair is always blowing in the in the wind no matter where she is yeah there's a bit of a love story between this cool cop and this very pretty cop lady Mm -hmm. um and there's another a guy a, a, a bad guy who's also young and cool who's working for the bad guys and you know, I don't want to say that there's a bit of an infernal affairs type situation going on here. <laughs> yep. But let's just say there's a twist halfway through, and uh, it's the longest pre-credit sequence I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, the, 
I, I believe 75 or 90 minutes in, that's when the title of the movie comes up. And then you whispered to me, there's still 90 minutes to go. <laughs> yep. And I would say the back half of the movie is even more eventful than the front <laughs> half. Towards the end, you said, hey, you remember when he was a cop? <laughs> yeah. Like, wow, that, that feels like a year ago. Okay, my favorite part is right after the intermission, mm. when he's in a bad guy phase, and you see him... Like partying like Jordan Belfort, <laughs> yeah. surrounded by white ladies in bikinis, riding a tank, like hundred dollar bills just flying through the air. Yeah, money everywhere. And we didn't point out that this is during a musical number as well. So awesome! So there's a part where a tank is driving over two black cars, just like a demolition derby. <laughs> yep. And then he walks in front of it, lighting a cigar. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, what vision of wealth is this? <laughs> Too much wealth. <laughs> but there's in, insane action. Yeah. Uh, it's got an amazing bit where they're flying through the air. like Chekhov's Jetman. They're like, ah, this is the Jetman program. We only use this if a Code Red happens in the city. Uh-oh, I think a Code Red's coming. They're flying through the air with jetpacks and people are falling and being rescued. As you whispered to me, it's like Turbo Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From Jingle All the Way. And I'm just, I'm exhausted. Yeah, I, three really, hours of movie. Really That's tired. A, it's like watching three Fast and the Furious films all smushed oh, yeah. together. Um, I'm glad I saw it. It's got a lot of entertainment in mm-hmm. it. Uh, the portions are huge. <laughs> yes. It's the thing is that, like, these movies, if one person, like, if I hadn't seen that, it would have just passed us by, and I probably would have never heard of it ever again. It's just amazing to think that movies like this probably pass us by all the time. All the time. Just wildly entertaining films that there is no time for. And then they just end up on Netflix yeah. to be forgotten and not watched. Yeah. Hey, speaking of stuff that'll end up on Netflix, forgotten and not watched, TIFF is about to start. <laughs> oh, that's right. Are, are you excited for anything this year? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's all the obvious stuff. Uh, I have some, like, world cinema titles on my list like if I don't see it here I'm probably never going to see it because I found that about like stuff I've skipped out on over the years I've gone looking for it's like that was never released yeah (laughs) nobody cared and it just disappeared but at the same time I think I said this in the last few years I'm not like I'll just see everything I can because then you see stuff you don't want to see and you're like why am I here Yeah, when I was younger, I used to like to go tip and see, like, the Oscar stuff early, mm-hmm. and, you know. Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it feels even less urgent now that it's, it's, like, Netflix movies. Yeah. But there's still, like, I'll, I'll go see some, I mean, the the thing that I'm most excited for is there's a Wakili Wood movie showing it Midnight Madness. Crazy World, yep. A few episodes ago, we talked about Wakali Wood. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll be able to see it on the big screen with an audience that is probably not ready for what they're about to see. That'll be very exciting. And uh, I have a ticket for Uncut Gems. Yeah, Uncut Gems, the Safdie Brothers film with uh, Adam Sandler. Uh, I mean, we're excited for My Name is Dolomite, but it's coming to Netflix in a f- yeah. f- like a month or two. Mostly I'm excited to attend big parties. I want to <laughs> be with I hate parties. celebrities. <laughs> I, want, I want to meet Brad Pitt, Matt Damon. Have you ever met any celebrities? In, like in, at a TIFF party, oh, yeah. Oh, no. I mean, I, I saw Morgan Spurlock from a distance once. <laughs> I once got into a conversation. This name will mean nothing to you, but uh, Dave McEwen, he's a famous comic book cover artist. He did all the Sandman covers. I just started talking with him, and then he told me who he was. He directed um, Mirror Mask. Remember that movie that came out a few yeah, years ago? I and I we do. just were talking at a party, and he's like, oh, yeah, my new film's playing here. Oh, I know who I met at a TIFF party once. Uh, PJ Phil from YTV. <laughs> That's right. I think you he was so excited, because I took the photo of you and him together, he right? He counts as a celebrity, I think. 
But I saw Dean Cundy once, but I didn't talk to him. <laughs> Dean Cundy. I mean, uh, yeah, that's right. I was at the same party with you, and yeah, he was yeah. from a distance. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> oh, that was not a good movie that he was there that he shot. But, uh, uh, I don't care. I just saw Roadhouse again, and he, he shot the hell out of it, I thought. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, other than that at TIFF, uh, tickets are too expensive. Let's no. be honest. Yeah, and I'm getting old, yeah. you know. I wish that, like, you know, um, was it do- Hot Docs? They did that thing that, like, at midnight films are cheaper. Tiff should do stuff like that. Like, yeah. in the back half of the week, tickets are less expensive, so us normies can go see movies. I think they should give me a press pass without me applying for one. <laughs> like, hey, I- you gotta apply with the Important Cinema Club. I can guarantee that you have more people that listen to your opinion on film than most people that get press passes at Tiff. I, you know, with no ego, I truly believe that to be true. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, maybe next year, but I genuinely feel like, you know, I'm a legend. I'm I'm Toronto royalty. I should just be given it without asking. Yeah, Frank D'Angelo is going to knock at your door and just hand it to you. Yeah.